Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Working with an individual graphic designer has its limitations. Timing is one of them. Do you want dozens of designs to choose from in just seven days? Visit 99designs.com slash smart and get a $99 power pack of services free. A podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. I'm Chris Stemp. And I'm John Rojas. And it kind of sounds like you're singing a song. I kind of felt like singing. All right. The sun, it is, today's one of the most beautiful days we've had this year. It is. It's absolutely gorgeous outside. We should be recording outside. How do we get set up outside to where the birds and the buses and all that stuff aren't interrupting? 4,000 foot extension cords this is the first way we get outside what about the soundproofing I, was just <laughs> I don't know hope your day is as beautiful as it is here maybe you're running walking biking hiking triking <laughs> planes trains and automobiles this week we talked to a guy who has a very successful podcast and he's always ranked higher than us in education well not always but most of the time but he's a good guy, so I'm okay with that. Yeah, his podcast is fantastic. It is, but sometimes like we're smart people podcast, and then you listen to his, and I'm like, oh man, some, we might be in the JV league. <laughs> I don't know. We speak with Russ Roberts. He is a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, which is at Stanford, and he basically tries to make economics understandable to a general audience. 
His weekly podcast is called Econ Talk, and it has been running since 2006, on the dot almost weekly. He's had some very cool guests that we would be happy to have on the show. Milton Friedman, Christopher Hitchens, Jimmy Wales, some super smart guys, and he talks about them. Guess which one he thinks is the smartest? Just guess. We're not going to yeah, tell we're you not tell you. Russ is taught at George Mason University, Washington University in St. Louis, UCLA, Stanford University, and the University of Rochester. All over the place. You, you name it, he's probably taught there. Pretty yeah. crazy. Yeah, and we don't just talk about economics here. We do talk about some really cool stuff in this episode, specifically how he crafted a career that is so badass. Yeah, and we get heavy into the future of education because this is something that's, you know, on my mind now being at General Assembly. Given your new job. New job, that's right. So it was it was exciting to talk to Russ about the future of education. I hope you guys enjoy it just as much as I did. Shoot us an email at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com. Let us know what's up in your world. What, who do you want us to interview? What problems do you need solved? What's going on? We're just trying to make a better podcast. And let the world know we always appreciate, we really, really appreciate when you tweet about us, like to our guests or just out in the world. It's a way to hopefully spread the love and show other people you like what we're doing. Here we go with Russ Roberts. Russ, thanks so much for being on the show. Really excited to talk to you today. Uh, the first thing I, I want to ask you, especially with a subject like economics, which is your forte, have you always just been interested in it or what's the background there? Uh, actually, I, I took a class in high school that I didn't enjoy very much, but I did enjoy reading the book. And I started to think maybe I should take this in college. I ended up taking it in college. I ended up being good at it. And I thought, well, that's good. I like that. It's pleasant. And I, I don't think I really fell in love with it till I was about done with college. Somewhere along the way, I really found the um, the power of economics as a lens for looking at the world uh, to really grab me. And uh, that, that's what got me going. That's a really interesting story, although it might not seem like it to you. But because oftentimes people, they find their way much later in life. We, we hear more and more how useless almost um, majors in college are. And yours seemed to be quite the opposite. It's like in high school, you found it, you picked it, you liked it, you learned more. And by the end, it solidified it. So it's kind of a, I don't know, I think it's an interesting uh, way to go about it. Well, I don't know if I was lucky or unlucky. Maybe I should have done something else. Now, trust me, from two people who have been all over the map, it, I wish I could just been like, boom, I like this. I'm out of here. That's yeah. really cool. So tell me about that lens that you say it helps you look at the world through. Well, economics is... It's a lot of different things to a lot of different to a lot of people. I, I like the line uh, that a student told me. Uh, she had heard it from a professor. She doesn't remember which one, but the line is, "Economics is about getting the most out of life." And when I think about that, I think of the fact that life's about making decisions and choices. And economics forces you to think about one: the idea of what's called opportunity cost. The idea that when you do something, you give up the opportunity to do something else. That's a healthy thing to keep in mind. The more interesting part, though, for me has always been that when a bunch of people make choices, those choices often aggregate and add up in ways that aren't obvious. And economists call those ways markets. And thinking about markets, thinking about how buyers and sellers, and uh, not just in the financial side of the economy, but in other parts of the economy, culture, religion, uh, just about everything, they're 
all these interactions between different people. And if you step back, you might think it's chaos. And what economics does is helps you see it as as a somewhat orderly process. What uh, Adam Smith uh, studied, what F.A. Hayek called spontaneous order. And uh, that's what, for me, has kept me intrigued and fascinated by economics for so long. This idea that there are unseen forces, there's nothing sinister about it, but unseen forces out in the world that push things in one direction or another. And if you understand economics, you can see some of the machinery behind the scenes. And that's uh, very rewarding. It doesn't make you rich. Uh, it doesn't help you lose weight, but it's not good for your golf game. <laughs> but you, you're, it's very rewarding, and um, it helps you understand a little bit about the world. There's a couple of things. That was a loaded answer, and I want to dive into. The first being, in all honesty, when you chose economics, was any of it a financial decision? Like, hey, I know no matter what, if I know economics, I can make a good amount of money. Uh, not at all. I thought it was going to be... Uh, exciting to be an economics professor. That was a little bit naive uh, at the time. And I went off to graduate school. And for me, it was always a contrast between being a professor and being uh, the chief economist, say, of an automobile company, where the latter being, uh, I wasn't very worldly at the time. I really should have thought about being an economist at Goldman Sachs. But uh, as the contrast of being a professor, but if you think about those two extremes, if you're an economist for Goldman Sachs or to anal do analytical work for a, a high-end finance uh, institution like Goldman Sachs, you make an enormous amount of money. But if you're a professor of economics, at least when I started, less true now, but when I started in 1980, you didn't make much money at all. And I thought that was just fine. I enjoyed the fact that a decent money, I think my, my, I think my starting salary in 1980 was uh, a little under $19,000 which uh, was great. I was happy as I could be, and I thought I had the best life possible. I still think that, even though I'm not a traditional professor anymore, and I make a little more money than 18900 <laughs> That'd be good, because, you know, even with inflation, I don't know about that. Yeah, no, there's been some inflation. 18, in today's dollars, it's worth quite a bit more than 18000 but sure. it, it's, not, uh, it's not a high-end occupation by any means. In 1980, it wasn't. Sure. So you definitely just followed the mindset of, I'm interested in it. Let's see where it leads. Yeah. When I was in graduate school, I went to the University of Chicago. And at the end of uh, your first year, you have to take an exam and you have to pass the exam. And uh, I, think, I think when I took it, about two thirds of the people flunked the exam. And you had three chances to pass it. And people, when they got to the first day that they got to campus, they started worrying about that exam. They started thinking, well, I got to look and see who's going to be on the committee and for the exam that year. And I should make I should take their classes and make sure I read the right stuff. And I always I rejected that attitude. Uh, my view was I'm going to learn what's interesting to me and what I love and what's fun. And I hope I'll pass. And I think that's a good way to live. Of course, sometimes don't pass. I did, as it turned out. But it, it is a little bit risky. But I thought the idea of studying for the exam from day one would be an incredibly uh, corrosive experience to my uh, intellectual curiosity. And so I think it's really nice. It doesn't always work out, but it's nice when you can follow your, your passion because passion carries you a long way. So if your passion is tying enormous knots using twine, 
you're probably not going to be a very successful person in the financial sense, and you're probably not going to make the world a better place. So your spiritual contribution isn't going to be very large. So I don't want to suggest that passion is all that matters, but it does carry you a long way. So if you have a choice between something you love and are passionate about and something that's maybe more rewarding financially and you're not excited about it at all, go for the passion. I mean, that's, that's a no-brainer. Yeah, and I love the fact, even from the get-go when I was asking you about economics, the way you put it being the lens in which you kind of interpret the world, you can see that, like for me, when I when I took economics classes, and I kind of liked them, but it was always about what do I need to know for the test. Yeah. The, the classes I did better at, or even in life, the things I tend to know more about, it's not at all I'm seeking an answer. I'm just kind of diving in and seeing what's going on, seeing what I can learn and what kind of lights a spark, you know? Yeah, it's a little more exhilarating. Yeah, exactly. Well, and then the other thing, going back to uh, what you were talking about a minute ago, is you mentioned the spontaneous order. And I'm probably going to butcher this, but I think it's Hayekian. Is that right? That's correct. What does that mean? I mean, I've never heard of that phrase, but I really like where you were going with all that. So I like the phrase, I like to call it emergent order. I find that to be a little more evocative of what I think it tries to capture. The idea is that there are things out in the world uh, that are caused by human beings that are orderly, but no one planned them or designed them. And some of those are not so good and some of them are fabulous. So an example of one that's not so good is traffic at rush hour in most large American cities. So around 4 p.m. Uh, in the afternoon and about 6.30, 7 a.m., uh, it's as if a memo went out to everybody. Everybody drives slowly. Uh, that's what it looks like. If you were a Martian who came down to Earth, you'd assume that everybody decides to slow down between 6 and 8 in the morning and, four, and 5 and 7 at night. Uh, but, of course, we know that's not true. Everybody wants to go fast or faster, but somehow we're all driving slowly. Now, how can that be? Nobody wants to drive slowly. It's not anybody's desire to drive slowly, but somehow all of us interacting together causes us to slow down. And that's a negative, uh, not so attractive example of a merchant order. It's also caused partly by the uh, decision by the government to not charge for the roads. So as a result, we converge on the roads together at a set time, and there's not enough space for us to drive safely at higher speeds. But nobody's intention. It's nobody's intention. But every day, like clockwork, literally, between those hours, we drive slowly. That's a negative emergent order, not so attractive one. Let's talk about a positive one. Uh, the Chinese people move from the countryside to the city. Their kids start attending school who used to work on the farm. All of a sudden, they want to buy pencils. So there's an increased demand for tens, maybe hundreds of millions of pencils in the world. Well, what, what, what do we do about that? Well, nobody's worrying about it. Not a single person is in charge of making sure that there are enough pencils to go around if the Chinese want to buy more of them. And there isn't an order that goes out from the government. There isn't a public service announcement that says, okay, everybody, I want let's try not to use our pencils on Tuesday. And everybody should make sure they use their pencils down to the very end and sharpen them as much as possible. And if you think you can memorize something instead of writing it down, please don't use your pencil. And that way there'll be more pencils available for the people in China. Well, that is the way we deal sometimes in America with water shortages, and they keep persisting. Uh, I'm in California right now. There's uh, all the uh, fountains are turned off here at Stanford. 
uh, because there's a water shortage. There are these public service announcements you hear on the radio, you know, take a short shower. That doesn't happen with other products. And strangely enough, uh, we're always having water shortages and we never run out of pencils. You never go down to the store to get a pencil and you're told, oh, we're sorry. We haven't had pencils for six months. The Chinese have them all. <laughs> so somehow the availability of pencils is taken care of, even though it's no person's job, no agency's job, no committee's job. There's no pencil czar to make sure that there's always plenty of pencils. There are plenty of pencils. How can that be? And that's really, to me, what economics is really about. It's about understanding that emergent order, that idea that somehow there's always a pencil available for people who want to buy them, despite the fact that there are periods of time where all of a sudden hundreds of millions of people might be wanting more of them, and yet somehow we don't run out. And part of the, the magic of economics is appreciating that. And the deeper part is understanding it a little bit better about how that can possibly happen. And I think that's the part of economics that gets tragically neglected in most college classes. That, that, that story I just told you to me, in my class, it might be 30% of the class, 25% of the, of the entire semester. For most uh, classes, it might be uh, 10 minutes, maybe. And I think we've lost something. Um, and if you think about it, that story I just told you, it's not very good for exam questions. So that's a negative if you're teaching an economics class and you're always worrying about how to test the knowledge of what you pass on. And so I think that's where the marvel and wonder of economics really is. And I, I like to think about it a lot, talk about it. Well, in that kind of example you gave, it brought up a couple in different ways. It brought up one issue for me, which is the current state of our education system. Are you a professor currently at Stanford or no? I'm not. Okay. Uh, although I'm teaching a class in, uh, in continuing studies, I'm teaching a, a fun summer nighttime class. But in general, no, I'm a research fellow at the Hoover Institution. Right. Uh, for 30 years, I was a, quote, regular professor uh, most of that time. Right. And now I'm, uh, I only do it a little bit on the, on the side now and then. Okay, yeah. So, right, you've, you've been a professor for a long time. But two things you brought up right there being that we aren't or a lot of economic classes, economics classes are focused on a different manner of teaching, whether it be po going towards something that you can test easily or whatever, and then not encouraging students to think through hypotheticals so that they gain the knowledge as opposed to just learn the theories and the graphs and the charts. Is that due to just a, an old, outdated academic model? Well, it's not just economics. Uh, it's true of lots of things. I took astronomy in college, and I learned nothing that I remember, not one thing, I'm sad to say. <laughs> it doesn't mean it was a waste. It could be I learned some things I don't remember that it somehow affected me. But I, I don't remember it as being a particularly interesting class, yet I find astronomy extremely interesting. And when I think back on that class, the reason it was not so interesting is that it was the recitation of facts. It was various theories about the, the universe, um, uh, sets of facts about how stars are born, how they die. Uh, there wasn't anything that I remember about the wonder of the nighttime sky. And I think part of that is that the wonder of the nighttime sky isn't very good for exam questions. So part of the problem with the modern American university, at least from my perspective as an educator, is the focus on uh, getting through, getting grades, and bestowing a certificate on folks. Um, 
when I used to teach at Washington University in St. Louis, one of my favorite experiences was when a group of social workers uh, in the graduate school of social work there came to me and said, you know, we're, we're learning economics in our social work classes, and we'd like to hear it from you. We have a feeling you have a different perspective. And they were right. Uh, and I, I said, well, I'll tell you what. I'll teach you uh, for, I forget, I've picked a certain amount of time. I said, we'll try this for a while. If you like it and I like it, we'll then commit to doing it for a longer period of time, and that'll be our deal. And we did that, and there was no grade. They didn't pay me. It was purely an exploration of ideas for the sake of learning. And that was one of my favorite teaching experiences ever. And similarly, uh, you know, I have a podcast, Econ Talk. I love the educational experience of being of being the host of that program. And to me, because I know that my listeners aren't most of them. There are a few who are doing it for college credit in their classwork. But most of the people who are listening to me do it because they want to. And that's a different model, unfortunately, or not. It's just the way it is. The modern American university uh, is not about that model. There are people in the room who are there to learn for learning's sake, but most of them tend to ask that question, which is, do we have to know this for the exam? <laughs> and my view has always been, uh, you know, if you're asking that question, I understand your desire to know that. I, I, it's a human impulse, but you'll actually do better if you don't worry about whether you have to know it for the exam. That comes back to our earlier conversation about passion and and uh, and learning for its own sake. It just it's better to pretend at least, even if you have to, if you have to pretend, pretend that it's that there isn't an exam. You're just going to learn what what excites and interests you, and you'll do better. This week's episode is brought to you by Ninety Nine Designs. Guys, great resources are hard to come by when you're a business of one. You're just starting out. You may not know many others in your industry, and connecting with people takes time. Lucky for both you and I, there are a lot of online resources out there that offer great connections with virtual assistants, web developers, and at 99designs with over 310,000 designers. Okay, why would you want to be connected with 310,000 designers? Well, when's the last time you reached out to a single designer and they absolutely nailed your design project? I'm talking you are so satisfied that you don't know how you ever lived without them. If this has ever happened to you, then consider yourself very fortunate. A great designer is hard to come by. However, when you have multiple designers all working on your project at the same time, then you have several options to choose from, increasing your chances of getting a design you absolutely love. You get to be involved in the process and walk away with a logo, website, or other design that truly represents your brand. Visit 99designs.com smart and get a $99 power pack of services for free. And remember, 99designs is supporting our show. So if this is a resource you could use, we really hope you use our link and support them. It's 99designs.com smart. And we want to talk about econ talk, and John actually wants to dive into a little bit more about education. But as you were talking about this, I often say to people that I was the worst student ever. And the reason is I got great grades through every year of college, high school, all that stuff. It was, it was actually all pretty easy for me. But I can say I really don't think I liked a single class in college. And I don't yeah. know if it was my fault. It might have been, and I'll take that blame. Or the professors, but 
I all I cared about was just listen to you know if you listen well enough you can find out what they're gonna want you to regurgitate later and then that's it and call it a day and it just frustrates me because now like you mentioned with you have econ talk we have this podcast so much of my life is dedicated to learning I'm interested in almost every single subject yet I couldn't find one that I wanted to dive in and use the university's resources that's mind-blowing to me yeah, I I understand that. I I had a lot of classes I loved. They weren't some of them were in economics, but not all of them, not even close. And I had a lot of economics classes I didn't like so much, and I didn't I didn't find exciting. But uh, I certainly agree with you. As you get older, and you realize how exciting learning can be, and you think back on what was I doing in all those classes? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Why did I study that? Yeah. You mentioned econ talk, and I really do want to talk to you about this because it you know it's such a fantastic podcast and podcasts aren't that big yet i mean they're definitely growing but how did you come to the realization that you wanted to do a podcast what made you go that route well i had started blogging uh sometime in the early 2000s i can't remember when but i was not an early blogger i thought it kind of was kind of silly and why should i just do this i should spend my time doing other things and so i was late to blogging and when I found out about podcasting, I decided, well, I'm not going to be late to this. I don't know if it's going to catch on. It seems like kind of a long shot, uh, but I don't want to be late. So I jumped in, and I very quickly after I jumped in, I realized that for it to be effective, I had to do it frequently. And I very early on decided to do it every once a week. And um, when I started, people said, oh, this you're wasting your time. No one's going to listen And for an hour. People <laughs> like short things. They like two to three minutes. And I just decided I wanted to do it long form. I wanted to do an hour or something like an hour eventually. At first, I started different lengths of time, but eventually I settled in on about 60 minutes. And uh, people said, oh, no one wants that. They don't have the time. And that's they were wrong. The reason they were wrong, though, is they didn't anticipate how the smartphone would change people's listening habits and their ability to listen to con- great content uh, as they commuted or exercised or walked their dog. And I think what makes podcasting so extraordinary, and I think I really, I think you're right. It's just kind of, it's young. I think it's going to get even better. The reason it's so great is that this technology allows people to expand their brain and ideally be a little bit entertained along the way while they're doing something that otherwise would not be so stimulating, like looking at the rear end of the car in front of them. <laughs> so it's um, it's been uh, it's been an extraordinary thing. It's really uh, changed my life. And allowed me, as you know, to talk to interesting people every week. It's it's really a wonderful, intellectually stimulating activity for me. Obviously, I'm trying to create interesting material for my listeners, but for me, it's exhilarating. For me, it's educational. So I, I'm amazed at how often uh, my I see connections between things out in the world and things I've, I've interviewed guests about. It's really fun. Yeah, and you mentioned you got in early, and I, I was just looking through your catalog, and your first episode was in 2006, which is Correct. pretty much, you know, if podcasting really started, like, getting somewhat popular 2005, 2006, I mean, that was right then. And it's it's really cool to see that people are consuming this stuff for an educational purpose. And that kind of brings me to my next question. Uh, you know, we talked about the current state of academia in America 
and we're learning to regurgitate test answers, exam answers, that type of thing. What is your thought about the future of education? Do you see podcasts and MOOCs and other things that are out there as these alternative education platforms becoming even bigger than they are today? Yeah, I think we've only scratched the surface. I think, you know, we're in a very experimental phase. People trying all kinds of different things. Some people are discouraged because it's not, it hasn't changed the world overnight. But most things don't change the world overnight. I think this will change the world over time. And I think, you know, the reason it's important is that like many, many uh, industries or institutions, education is a pretty sclerotic industry. It's extremely clogged with habits and and culture and customs that may not be the best ones. And normally those would disappear, the, the, the lousy ones, but it's not a very competitive environment. And so the competitive pressure to innovate and please your customers uh, is is not there in most cases. And what I see this technology doing is giving an end around to the uh, barriers to competition that are in place. And as a result, I think there's going to be some potential for tremendous changes, certainly outside the United States and poorer countries who are going to have access now to incredible resources in, in learning how to be uh, computer savvy or to do uh, coding. But I'm, I'm optimistic that it'll also have a big effect on the educational process here in the United States, which is, of course, mediocre at many levels. There are parts of the United States educational system that are first rate. There are some first rate high schools and a lot of first rate universities, first rate classes, but there's not excellence across the board or anything remotely close to it. And the opportunity to access uh, a brilliant teacher who right now is reaching 70 students or 30 students or at most four or 500 students and instead reach 100,000 or 500,000 students, that's a game changer. Uh, It hasn't had its full impact yet. We're still working on ways to improve it, to allow for more interaction, to test over the Internet or still in brick and mortar ways using Internet material. So that's all still, you know, in transition. But once as we move forward, I think it's going to have an enormous impact. Yeah, and personally, I think that the one of the reasons that education is so clogged is because of archaic policy or just absurd policy that's out there. Yeah. Do you? I mean, do you agree with that? A and then B. Do you think that it's going to be changed within the U.S. via disruptors, or do you think that it's going to be now we're going to have to catch up to external countries and we're going to have to shift policies just to catch up with them? No, I think it's mainly disruptors. I think. Uh, you know, for example, there, there are so many things we teach that are, t- that are the same across the country. Just to take an obvious example, calculus. So let's say you're in a high school calculus class and you have a mediocre teacher. And by the way, I, I certainly believe that a world-class teacher in person is very difficult to match via the Internet. There's something special about a face-to-face interaction with a great teacher. But most of us don't have great teachers. Most schools don't have great teachers. So let's say you're in one of the ones that doesn't. You have a mediocre or worse, an awful calculus teacher. And sitting there on the Internet, probably right now, is a great calculus class. So it, as a parent, how long am I going to put up with the fact hmm. that I'm paying either directly or indirectly for the and certainly there's a human cost to the fact that my child 
as a mediocre calculus teacher when there's a fabulous one, maybe without charge, that I could get for free on the internet. And so that's got to eventually, if not sooner than later, put competitive pressure on on the schools to to do a better job. So it's possible that that mediocre teacher is going to get better now faced with that competition, or that mediocre teacher will be replaced by that online alternative that's, again, not as good as a great face-to-face teacher, but a lot better than the mediocre face-to-face teacher. From an economics perspective, what does that mean for the way our society operates if so many of these things are going online? So we were just talking about education, but obviously everything, so many resources for free. I actually blogged about the fact that now, you know, the thing is the free economy. It's we'll give you something for free. You can use it forever like Spotify right? Mm-hmm. Um, now you might have to pay 10 bucks if you want to get rid of ads, but really you can listen to a ton of music. And so musicians are having a harder time or yeah. you have Netflix and all those types of things. I feel like there are obviously positives and negatives from an economic standpoint and generating cash and, and just keeping it going. What do you see or what do you expect? Well, nobody knows. And if you look at, you know, we're again, we're at the very beginning of this online revolution if you look at newspapers are an interesting example. So this is the greatest time to be alive if you're a curious person. There's no point in human history that's as exhilarating and filled with opportunity and rich with with possibility as, as right now, right? It's going to get better. It's great right now. It's going to get even better. So you think about that. People are... <laughs> Three years ago, four years ago, five years ago, people said, well, this is horrible because all this information is ruining the journalism business. Well, somehow the journalism business has recreated itself. It's true. A lot of newspapers have gotten a lot thinner. They're not very good. They don't have very good staff, no good writers. But at the same time, there's been an explosion of news in all kinds of other formats, in all kinds of other ways on the web. And I think people are much better informed than they used to be, dramatically better than when they had, say, one newspaper or even two newspapers in their hometowns. So when that started, a lot of the online news services, of course, gave away their product. And people said, well, how are they going to make money? And people said, well, maybe they'll have advertising. And, of course, that's one way it's happened. There is some advertising. But the other way is, of course, subscription. And people said, well, they gave it away. How are they going to start charging for it? Well, they're finding a way. They have all kinds of ways. They have insider content that you have to charge for. Like you said, if you want the ad-free version, you have to, you, you have to pay. If you want access sometimes to, to more than just the front page, you have to pay. So we don't know how it's going to all fall out. It's, it's early still, but people will, I think, find ways to make this business model successful. Not everything's going to be given away, and uh, not, which, is, which is great that a lot of it is, but some of it will be paid for. And that'll help create the resources for the people who actually do the reporting, in the case of music, who do the, the recording, who create the music. And, and I'd have to say, I could be wrong. It's hard to measure it literally, but I wouldn't say it's a bad time to have musical ability. <laughs> it's true. There, if, in the old days, if you had old days meaning 15 years ago, 15 years ago, you're a great musician. You'd get snapped up by a record, co- record company and you'd get a contract. Of course, they didn't make... They didn't get everybody. They'd miss some great opportunities because they only had a limited amount of resources and they had to market very intensely to, to get the word out about these people, the, the musicians they had, the record, records and, and music that was being recorded. Today, it's very different. 
But I wouldn't say that if you have musical ability, it's a horrible time because no one pays you for what you do. There's still a lot of people, maybe even more than before, creating great music. And uh, so it's great to be a listener. Just an extraordinary thing. I, there's a old comedy routine by uh, a comedian named uh, Robert Klein. He used to make a joke about late night advertising. So this would be things like the Ginzu knife and the pocket fisherman. These in the old days, these were the weird products that people would advertise at, at late night TV. And his parody of that was, he said, "Now's your chance. You can get every record ever recorded." A truck will come to your house. And and that was the humor of it was, of course, there couldn't be a truck that could come to your house with every record ever recorded. But I don't have to even wait for the truck. <laughs> I have more access to music than than Robert Klein could have choked about. It's uh, it's it's amazing. Kind of tying this into what we were talking earlier about with education. One of the I don't know if it's an argument, but one of the sides uh, about people saying, look, universities getting too expensive people should just start using MOOCs and things like that is universities do the majority of our research and they that's how they're funded and i know and i kind of wanted to talk about the hoover institution how do you feel about that thought process of if money gets taken out of university pockets then we lose valuable research well a lot of the research that's done in universities isn't that productive it's Funded by the government, some of it's spent well and some of it's not spent so well. And, of course, there's a lot of research done in in labs that are privately owned. They're not part of, of, the, of the government system. That, again, is going to turn out just like all the stuff we've been talking about. And the answer is, how is it going to turn out? Well, we don't really know. But somehow things will – creative people who have great ideas, I think, will find ways to get funding for them. Uh, the parts of university research that we I think most of us care about – uh, take place in the hospitals, take place in the sciences, uh, take place in the you know in the medical labs, and I think that kind of research will be funded in all kinds of ways. One of the ways it'll be funded is is through continuing the government's process, but a lot of it I think will come from private foundations that will fund that activity. But very little of that activity is funded out of tuition dollars right now, because really the, the the money goes the other direction. Most universities are, are being funded out of their endowments. And their their grants and uh, education's you know it's weird education's kind of the thing they do on the side, right. Uh, right. which uh, I, I'd like to see that kind of change a little bit. I'd like to see uh, great teaching be uh, the focus of, of universities, and it's not because right now necessarily because there's a lot of alternative ways to be successful other than serving the students. And so I think it'd be great if there was more focus on that. I think that'd be good for good for education. Definitely. No, it's it's true. I, f- I feel like education is becoming kind of a side note at universities. But uh, I want to transition onto the last topic we had on our list, which was the Hoover Institution. And I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about what that is and even more specifically what you do there. Well, the Hoover Institution is a research center on the Stanford campus uh, most of the people here are interested in one of two things, either uh, economic policy or foreign policy. I don't know what the breakdown is. I don't know if it's not exactly 50-50, but we have a lot of folks uh, in each area. Uh, many people here have appointments at other departments in the university and teach in economics or political science, say, or the business school. Uh, so it's a, um, it's a place where we try to figure out how the world works. And it's a luxury for me. It's an incredible luxury to have the opportunity 
to be full-time trying to encourage economic education, which is what I'm passionate about. So I don't have any formal teaching responsibilities. As I mentioned, I, I'm teaching a night class this summer, but in general, uh, my time is free to devote to things that I think are interesting for people to help them understand economics. So the podcast I mentioned, the books that I work on, the videos that I try to create online, those are my job as uh, a, a fellow here at the Hoover Institution. And uh, that's I got to have the best job in the world. I was just about to say that is literally <laughs> the coolest job. It's not even fair. How do you come across that? Well, I, when people ask me that, sometimes a young economist will say, well, I'm, I also am interested in helping people understand economics. Uh, how do I get your job? And the answer is, well, it's not easy. It's, there aren't a lot of people who are lucky enough to have the, uh, the opportunity I have to do economic education on the web uh, basically full time in ways that I find interesting. So uh, it's growing. I like to point out that in 19... Oh, in the 1970s, there were two people who could make some money uh, educating people about economics. That were those two were people were Milton Friedman and Paul Samuelson. They took turns writing a weekly column for Newsweek magazine. That was it. <laughs> if you were interested in educating people out in the world about how the world worked in economic ways, uh, there were only two jobs, and Friedman and Samuelson kind of locked them up, and they did that for for many years. It's an amazing thing that we live in a time now where a creative person can use an ability to communicate with with insights, just as you do, to create a podcast, to create a blog, to have a YouTube channel. Uh, this is this is just it's a glorious time to be alive if you have those abilities because the distribution channel that the internet allows is just unparalleled. There was no opportunity like that until very very recently. So I consider myself extremely lucky to be alive at a time when I, I I can do something other than write academic articles that a few of my peers read. Instead, I can try to reach a larger audience and expand what my reach. And that's really what the Internet allows us to do. And that's just it's a fabulous time. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, podcasting being a huge part of our lives and something that's just fantastic. And I really commend you for kind of going this route and saying, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to work on explaining things to the masses as opposed to, which I think some people do, oh, you know, to stroke my ego, I'm going to write a bunch of research papers that 13 people that already know it will read. And I, I just, I don't know. I love that. The last thing just came to me as I was kind of looking over your guest list over the years. It is literally the who's who. You've had some great guests. This question is probably going to stump you, but who jumps out in your mind as perhaps the smartest person you've ever talked to? Uh, well, that's a tough one, obviously, you know, because I've yeah. talked to a lot of smart people, and so many of them are smarter than I am. So, you know, it's, <laughs> I, my my original reaction often when I finish a, an interview to say, "Wow, right. that was so interesting. That guy's so smart, or she's so brilliant." So it, it's not um, it's not easy. I, you know, I, I was I've been fortunate enough to interview a number of my the intellectual heroes of my youth, people like Milton Friedman or Gary Becker, who was my advisor at the University of Chicago. Uh, who recently passed away, uh, and there are many, many others like that. They were—they're all very, very, very bright people. Um, at the same time, I recently interviewed Mark Andreessen, who was uh, co-founder of Netscape, Mosaic, and is now a very successful venture capitalist in Silicon Valley. And I was just—I'm oh, just blown away by his insights into into Bitcoin and, and the venture capital world and the investment world. 
I got to interview John Bogle uh, a few years back, the founder of Vanguard. Talk about a world-changing insight, the idea of an index mutual fund. Christopher, here's an easier question to answer. Who's the most articulate person I've interviewed? It might be Christopher Hitchens, uh, the late journalist, essayist, author. It was a thrill to interview him about uh, George Orwell, who's his intellectual hero. And when I was done with that interview, I remember thinking, boy, is that Christopher Hitchens a good talker? Yeah. That guy can really string together a sentence. Uh, George Will, Mark Halperin, uh, one of my, probably my favorite author of fiction, Mark Halperin, it was a thrill to interview him because he and, and George Will, their ability to speak off the cuff without notes and string together sentences and paragraphs. Richard Epstein, the legal professor of NYU and University of Chicago, same ability. Can, can, he speaks in full paragraphs. Uh, so those are the people. That, I don't know if they're the smartest, but they sure are fun to listen to. Yeah, no, it's funny because Christopher Hitchens is one that, I mean, I, I didn't know if you'd mention him or not. But just the, when you listen, I watch his you know, YouTube videos and the, all the debates he does and everything. The guy, he's just incredible. And it, a lot of it's, like you mentioned, we've talked to people on the podcast who are, you know, communications coaches and all this. And it comes down to oftentimes your ability to just get your thought out of your head in a way that makes sense to the other person. And it's as simple yeah. as that. Yeah. As simple as uh, that, I say. It's I don't simple know. as that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's harder than it sounds. It sounds easy. Well, Russ, I, I don't want to take up any more of your time. This has been awesome. I love talking to you. Love your podcast, which is Econ Talk for all our listeners. And we will link to that. Is there anywhere else that you kind of put work out there that you'd like people to check out? Uh, well, I archive some of my writing at invisibleheart.com. It's out of date right now, but there's still a lot of interesting things that are up there from the past. Uh, and I'm hoping to revitalize that shortly. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at EconTalker. Uh, I blog at Cafe Hayek, but not much lately because I'm just so busy. But I hope to, to get back there soon. Uh, so th those are the easiest ways to find me. That's awesome. Well, again, thanks so much for being on the show. We really appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. All right. Have a great night, Russ. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Welcome back. I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation with Russ Roberts. You know, as I'm sitting here thinking about all the awesome tweets and emails we get, I wonder if we should spend a little bit of time in the outro personally thanking these people or reading the awesome ones we get. I don't know. I just We get awesome ones every single day. I love it. And maybe it's time that this might inspire other people to send stuff in so they can hear it read on the show. Well, I love it. I mean, not even for that purpose that, you know, to inspire people and to force action or whatever, but it's a way of kind of when people just take time to write us an email and granted we're taking time to do the podcast, but I'm just like, man, that's so cool. Like that's thoughtful. Yeah. Connections are wonderful. Yeah. It feels good. Who, inside. who doesn't love human connection? So maybe we'll do that. You know what else I was thinking? I've been doing this on the intro, but I'm going to do it a little bit on the outro. Since we talked about in this episode how Russ created this career and this life that he's loved, I'm wondering if you're thinking, man, I want to create something that every day I wake up and enjoy. And if you know my journey, I've struggled through careers I didn't like. And finally, we took a sabbatical, started the podcast, worked for a nonprofit, all this good stuff. And I really want to help others do the same thing. I want to help you utilize your natural talents, what you're good at, but you might not see it. And I want to help you find it, utilize it, better the world. So shoot me an email at chris at chrisstemp.com. We'll set up a time. We'll chat. 
Some of you just think, oh, what's he doing? But I am formally trained in uh, career and life coaching by the Coaches Training Institute, which is recognized by the ICF. So I am a professional. Yeah, not, guys. Not just a podcaster. Take take him up on this offer. I might be biased, but it is definitely worth you at least filling his inbox and connecting with him because, you know, what do you really have to lose to just have a, an email conversation or a Skype conversation? You'll get some good advice. Again, I know I might be biased, but do it anyways. It's it's a step that, you know, a lot of people need to take and Hey, when it's a free step, it's definitely worth it. Appreciate that, John. We're just spitballing here. But even if you don't take us up on that, continue listening. Smart People Podcast, we love you. Catch you next week.